Greetings in Jesus' name. I'm Bishop Chester Wright. This is the video teaching series, Our Motives from God's Perspective, Part 2. And in this Part 2 series of lessons, this is lesson number 9. And uh, last uh, lesson, we talked about service. What is, uh, that, what is the motive behind our service? What constitutes true spiritual service? So I want to I want to want to talk about that in this uh, this lesson. What is true spiritual service? True spiritual service is not about our needs; it's about our relationship with God. We don't serve God; we don't have a relationship with God because of what we get out of it. True spiritual service, true spiritual humility, true spiritual. Uh, motive is how can we be submitted to God so that we can be his conduit and he can use us however he wants to use us, whenever he wants to use us, wherever he wants to use us to do whatever he wants to do when he wants to do it. So true spiritual service, again, is not about our needs. It's about our relationship with God. Is also about the gifts that the Father has entrusted us with and being faithful with them and, and uh, allowing him to use them for his purpose and not ours. It is never true spiritual service if our motive for what we're doing, what we're praying, what we're giving is first and foremost what we're going to get out of it. Does God bless giving? Yes but is giving for the purpose of getting a motive that pleases God? No, it is not. I can have faith that if I give, the Lord will bless what I'm giving. But if the motive for giving it is to get, uh, then my motive's wrong. I don't pay my tithes because I'm cursed if I don't. Don't pay my tithes to obligate God to give me something. Tithe is the acknowledgement that God is the source of everything. And so in the Old Testament, tithe was 10%. And the Lord said, okay, in order to acknowledge that you believe that I supplied everything, then I'm at, I am requiring you to give 10%, the first 10% of everything you you." of your increase, everything you earn, everything, whatever, everything you get, that first 10% is mine. Now, we preach tithes in the New Testament because of people's the hardness of people's heart. But the New Testament uh, giving plan is 100%. And that's what we gave when we got saved. Now, we may have taken it back, but we are not our own in the New Testament. We are bought with a price. There's nothing that is ours. My body, my mind, my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, my health, my time, my life, my family, my job, my possessions, my money, my talents, my gifts. Nothing is mine. I'm not my own. I was bought with a price. Not my own. I was bought with a price. So 
to give something, don't I have to first own something? So New Testament giving is like uh, what a bank does. You deposit your money in a bank, and they can use it, and it increases your money because they're using it. That's what you get out of it. But then when you want some or all of your money, you write a check, and they've got to give it to you because it's your money. It's never their money. They, they are stewards of it, and they are allowed to use it. And they can benefit by it as a bank. But when I want my money, they've got to give me my money. Now, that's the way it's supposed to work. Now, we know in the past there's been some banks that did they used the money bad and they couldn't pay people's money. Banks failed. Okay, well, God's got some banks that's failed too because he has deposited his good gifts, his true treasures in people's lives. They are his bank. And he lets us use what he's deposited in us for our benefit as long as we never take ownership of it. And whenever he wants it, however much that is, however much that is, we we make good on his withdrawal. Now, we call it giving. But in fact, in principle, it is not giving because we don't own it. The bank's not giving you something because you're withdrawing your money out of the bank. They're not giving. They're not saying, okay, well, we'll give you 10% of it. The rest of it is ours. Now, the Lord knows what we need, and we are his children, and he owns us. If I'm saved, truly saved, I don't own me. If I'm truly saved. If I think I own me, I'm not truly saved. Because I've been bought with my pri- up with a price. I am not my own. I either believe that or I don't believe it. I either want to live that or I don't want to live it. And if I don't want to live that, I want to run my own life and expect God to bless me. Then that makes me God and him the servant. But we're the servant. We're the sons. And sons serve as a part of what the family is doing. It's the, father's, it's the father's business, and we are his sons serving as his servants, but we're his sons. And he's deposited in us, and we have use of it, but what are we going to do with it? What's our attitude toward it? I need this more than the church does. Well, hey, you may. But you have a father that knows what you have need of before you can even ask it. So if I'm not going to let him have authority over the resources he's entrusted me with, then I'm not trusting him to supply my other needs. And so I want to give what I can afford to be without in an offering and claim I've given that and I've sown that seed. Yes, it's true. Every farmer has to decide what portion of the seed he's got can be used to make bread and feed his family out of. And what portion of that seed needs to be kept aside for planting the next crop. And if there's any surplus over those two, then he can sell that extra seed to somebody else for profit for the family. 
And it is part of stewardship to know the difference here in his direction. <clears throat> but don't forget Jesus' parables. Who's the owner of the vineyard? The father was. He was the owner and the husbandman of the vineyard. Now, he leased out the vineyard one time, and he sent servants to get his profit, and they refused to get it, and they killed, killed the servants. And finally, he said, I'll send my son. They'll respect my son. And they said, no, if we kill the son, it's ours now. <coughs> it's ours. How many people are doing that? They've killed the servants of God. They've killed the son of God in their life because they've claimed the father's vineyard as their own. That is not true spiritual service. So true spiritual service is not about our needs. It's about our relationship with God. It's also about the gifts that God has entrusted us with and being faithful with them and allowing him to use them for his purposes, not ours. It's also about connecting with God at the deepest levels because we involved, we are involved with him in his purposes and his glory. The greatest service that I've ever been involved in with the Lord is to just be his yielded conduit to do whatever he wants to do, wherever he wants to do it, whenever he wants to do it, and do whatever he wants to do. Now, that, that what, what an honor that is. What a privilege that is. But we don't... We don't uh, I've said this before, we don't give the phone credit because it gave us good news, and we don't damn the phone because it gave us bad news. That's all I want to be is a, I want, I, I want to be humble enough to be as neutral as this phone. So there is a connection with this phone. It's always working. And I want to always be connected so that I can respond as the Lord needs me to, so he can communicate through me, not so I can get the credit, not so that I can get the glory, but the privilege of just being a conduit. That is true spiritual service. True service always acknowledges both our own and the intrinsic worth of others. A conduit doesn't say, look at me, and aren't you the peons that God has to use me to talk to you? That's not it. It's God loves people so much that he will use whatever conduits are available to him to communicate his love to them so that the people being communicated with will see God, will hear God, and not a person. We are dead. That's the ideal. And his and. We are, our lives are hid with Christ and God, so people see God and not us. The motive is wrong when we're trying to win people to us so that we can win them to God. That's not God. That's not biblical. And it's wrong motive. Because what if I'm not a person that people would normally like? Can't, can God speak through me? John the Baptist was considered a weirdo. Let's face facts. People thought he was weird. He didn't dress like them. He didn't eat what he did. And he was all the time hanging out in the desert. God used John the Baptist, who was a weirdo. And that was, Jesus compared that. John's out there doing whatever, and you did this. But it, here I am. 
I'm eating and drinking with you, and you call me a glutton and a wine bibber. He was weird, and you thought he was a weirdo, and you went out to see the show. But here I am. I appear normal. You won't receive me either. True service always acknowledges both our own and the intrinsic worth of others. True service does not place us beneath others as servants with no rights of our own. Neither does it place us above others as kings casting bread to the peasants below. True service equalizes. It recognizes what we get back from our giving is the joy of serving with God and Him ministering through us. That is, that is true humility. That is true, true motives. That is what God is looking for from each and every one of us. Now, the Lord's desire is for us to be free from our past, free from our shame, to be able to be his conduit or to serve him as a conduit. If we are to be free to truly serve God, we must not deny the feelings of unworthiness that either force us into the role of rugged individualists or make us doormats. Either condition can drive us to addictive behavior. So if I truly want to please God and I truly want to serve God, I cannot live in willing and willful denial of those things that God is wanting to do in and through me, and that I need him. I can't live in denial of those things, and I can't live in denial of the wrong motives I have, and I can't live in denial of the the source of those wrong motives, which is shame. Now, most everybody's had some kind of shame in their life because that seems to be the number one tool Satan uses in order to try to bring people into captivity. His captivity is shame that he can use to manipulate them. He is the accuser of the brethren, and shame accuses me to me. So it's a work of the adversary. It's not humility. It's not humility. Recognizing my faults and failures is humility. Letting them become debilitating where I can't believe that God loves me and use me is not of God. It's from the adversary. It's not of God. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Condemnation is not the same thing as conviction. When God convicts us of our sin, of our failures, there's always hope in it. That's wrong. But if you'll repent, I'll forgive you, and let's go forward. But condemnation says, that's it. You're hopeless. You're messed up. You're never going to get this right. You're never going to be right. You're never going to be whole. You're always going to be messed up. You might as well give up. That's condemnation, and it's never from God. It's never from God. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt uh, is conviction from God. And I can repent of my guilt and be forgiven. But shame is me always beating myself up. Me condemning myself. Me talking bad about myself to myself. 
Can't you ever get it right? What are you, stupid? It used to be one of my favorite words to refer to myself with. You're stupid. You can't do anything right. That's not God. That's not the way the Lord talks to us about us. He doesn't call us names. But shame does because it's a work of the adversary. Instead of hiding our feelings of unworthiness and trying to escape our pain, we must seek to be delivered and healed. We must put our feelings in proper perspective. God's perspective is we are to be his servants. I cannot please God. I cannot have true humility if I hold on to my shame. And burying it inside is not dealing with it. Just because I'm able to move it out of my conscious mind does not mean I'm free. Just because I'm able to to by a force of will not think about it doesn't mean I'm over it. Let me use a a simple example. Say, say I've got a wound in my hand and uh, it has progressed enough that my hand doesn't hurt all the time, but it's very painful to the touch. And I'm just going through about my daily life. Now I'm kind of protecting that hand when I think about it. I, I know that if I bump it on something or I touch it with something or whatever, if, I, if I'm thinking, I know that I'm going to hurt it. But it's possible to get caught up in life. You don't think about that stuff. So you meet somebody. Maybe it's a friend you already know. You're, you're meeting someone, whatever. And you, in greeting them, you just reach out your hand without even thinking. And they reach out and to just positively greet you. And they take your hand to shake your hand. They touch the hand and hurt you. Draw it back. You hurt me. How does that person feel? What did I do? I just I was just shaking your hand. You hurt me. My, my hand is, is wounded. And you, 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 you touch that. It hurts. Yeah. And you know why they hurt you? Because you haven't had that wound dealt with so that it would heal and you'd get past the pain and the soreness. Right, right, right. Because right here, I've got a scar. I've shown that scar to hundreds of people over the years. Uh, That's a scar. It's about an inch and a quarter long. I remember exactly what I was doing when I got it. I was in the fifth making a a sword out of a piece of one by two and I had it in a vise and I had a hacksaw cutting the point on the sword and when it came through the wood it came down and laid that hand over and uh, I had to go I begged my my mother to not make me get stitches because I I knew they'd put a needle in there to numb it and then I'd get stitches I didn't want that so I begged her just to doctor it and put a band-aid over it and leave it alone she did and so I've got a scar. But it's not a wound. Scars are memories. There's no feeling with a scar. There's no pain when the scar is touched because the wound is healed. And if you've got memories in your life that you can't afford to think about because when you think about them, negative feelings come up. Pain humiliation, anger, shame, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You got wounds that aren't healed. 
you're not whole. But the Lord loves you. And he doesn't want you to live like that. He wants to heal you. And in the final lesson in part two, we're going to talk about how to be healed from shame. I'm praying that what you've been hearing as a child of God that, or someone that wants to be a child of God, and, and you want you want to be who's you want to be pleasing to God. You want what's right. And you want to be healed. That in this next lesson, when I talk about how to be healed for shame, how to let the Lord minister to your shame, that you'll be open. And I'm telling you this now, because here's the test for whether or not you are hiding, running, or if you're wanting to be whole and pleasing God. If you're running, you're going to find reasons to avoid that next lesson. If you're running, hiding, oh, I don't need to watch that. No, no you're hiding. But if you're hungry for God and you want to be humble and you want to be whole and you want to be able to be a conduit for him, for him to use you, then you will watch that next video lesson, the last one in part two. And the Lord will minister to you. The Lord will minister to you. Our motive for service demonstrates our our humility or lack of it. Whatever our motive is tells what our whether or not we're humble. We may be only humble jars of clay but we are jars of clay that hold the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In our hearts, we hold the treasure of God's glory and power. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. True spirituality is determined by how big the gap is you seem between the treasure in you and the vessel you. The more spiritual I become, the more spiritual he makes me. The more full of God and governed by God I become, which is the definition of spiritual, to be filled with the Spirit and governed by the Spirit. The more spiritual I become, the more, the more I will see both God, the treasure for who he is, and the vessel for who and what it is. So the more gap I can see, the more spiritual I am, and the more I will give God the glory. The more the the vessel won't take any of the credit. The more gap there is, the more awareness of the difference between the treasure and the vessel, the more I will understand that it's God and not me, and I'll give him all the glory and credit, and my motives will become more and more pure. In our hearts, we hold the treasure of God's glory and power because we have all this surpassing power in residence in our hearts. We can say with the Apostle Paul, we are hard-pressed. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Because we are poor in spirit, we have all the riches of God dwelling in us. All the riches of his kingdom are available to us if we are poor in spirit. If we've come to the end of ourselves, 
and we see the difference between us and God. And we want simply to be vessels of God and conduits of God and submitted to God. Then all the riches of the kingdom of God, all of his power, all of his glory, all of his truth, all of his authority, all of his dominion, his name, his kingdom, the keys of the kingdom, the promises of God, the oaths of God are all available to us if we are poor in spirit. The poet Noel McInnes wrote, Be loving of your empty times as well as your full times. No one has ever had a filling without an emptying to give it room. My wife and I have sung the song for years. Uh, I've never seen a rainbow till after the rainbow. I've never known his healing power till after the pain. I've never known... Never seen a sunrise till after the night. I've never had the victory till after a fight. He promised us. He promised us these things. I want to close this lesson just reading the words of Paul that are the basis of this lesson. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Did you notice that? We have this treasure in earthen vessels. That treasure doesn't make us kings and priests in this life. That treasure doesn't make us someone that people will bow down and acknowledge. In fact, it probably will produce rejection and persecution because people are convicted by lives that understand the difference between the vessel and the treasure and allow the treasure to use the vessel without the vessel taking the credit because the excellency of the power is of God and not of us. So Paul says, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. These things are all dying, dying things. Trouble on every side, not distressed, perplexed, not despair, persecuted, not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. All these things are, are dying things, always bearing about the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body or through our body. Because the Greek word there is the Greek word uh, that denotes a fixed position, a relation of less, uh, uh, a relation of rest, but also uh, mediality or uh, instrumentality so that our bodies might be manifested by our bodies, through our bodies and in us. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh, by our mortal flesh. So we are, we are dying out to ourselves constantly and we're letting the Lord work in our lives constantly. Those that desire true motives 
or letting him purify our motives constantly. So we're dying to ourselves, but he's living through us in manifestation. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. This is true spiritual service. It's understanding that to be used of God is not for my benefit. It's benefit of the kingdom, benefit of God, benefit of those that are receiving it. Paul said, we having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written by David, I believe, therefore, I have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. This is faith. This is how faith, faith works. Faith, I need to receive, and then I need to speak. That's faith. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes. What? You hear it? True humility. It's all done for them. It's done for Jesus and for them. It's not done for us. True humility. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound or abound to the glory of God. Everything is for your sake, so that you might receive grace through us, so that much thanksgiving will be given to God for his glory. And again, thanksgiving is a product of realizing that it's God and not us. For which cause we faint not. We don't give up and quit. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. My outward man may be going through all kinds of circumstances in his life, but my inward man is at peace and fellowship with God, and it's strengthened by God. For our light affliction, no matter how horrible it may be to you, no matter how painful it is to you, compared to the glory, compared to what's coming, it's light. For our light affliction, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment in comparison to eternity, if it's our whole life, it's a whole life of blindness or a whole life of lameness or whatever it is, that God is preparing you to become in his eternal kingdom through whatever trial or test he's allowed to come for you to prepare you for your place in his kingdom, it is, it is just for a moment. And it worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal. Temporal service. Wrong motive in service is for temporal benefit. Right motive in service is for eternal benefit, even if nothing happens here and now because of it. My friend, I pray for you right now, and I pray for me. And I pray for the body of Christ, that the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, would work in us, in our hearts, our minds, our souls, our spirits, by His Spirit, by His Word, by His name, by His blood, by His grace, would work in us to open our eyes and let us see truth and knowledge of God and the things of God. And it would empower us to want to do what God would have us to do so that we can be Come in God, who he wants us to be, conduits for the glory of his name 
and for the manifestation of his kingdom and for the accomplishing of his will in the earth. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. I am strongly encouraging you for your sake to watch the last video in this series so that God can help begin the healing process in your life. Or maybe you've been ministered to in the past, but in this teaching, you've seen that there are some new symptoms that have showed up. Dealing with our shame is like layers. Shame begets shame. And God starts at the root and works his way out in those layers until we're whole. And I have to be true to the process to let him do that. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that he would give you the grace and you would receive it to be willing committed to the process of wholeness so you can be humble in him and have motives that are pleasing to him. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. God bless you.